No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. Together with my host, co-host, Marilia Duffels, we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the things that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So welcome. And tonight we have a great guest, uh, Dr. John Grinspan, who's uh, the curator of uh, the curator of the America at the American History Museum at uh, the Smithsonian Institution. He's written a new book, uh, and he's come to talk to us about what his research has shown uh, in, in, in his research in the history of America, what that teaches us about what's going on today. And I'm really interested to find out about this. Uh, Dr. Grinspan, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be on and, and discuss this stuff with you. Yeah, it's great, you know, because I'm, look, I'm someone that, uh, if I say past is prologue once, I say it a thousand times when I talk to people. And so I'm really interested in what your history, uh, you know, what your research and the books you've written, what they tell us about uh, what's going on today and what we might be able to expect in the future. And the first question I have for you is why... <laughs> Don't people have better historical memories? I mean, when I talk about politics and I'm out there, do you have any insight on this? I'm out there. People don't remember what happened 20 years ago in politics in America. It's crazy. I mean, people don't remember what happened six months ago. We have a yeah. massive, massive industries of media that, you know, not just the big uh, cable news, but every aspect of news media and social media works to keep it churning and keep us focused on what's new, what's about to happen, and to get us to forget what has happened six months ago. So our, our cause and effect seems to be a little broken in our democracy because things happen and then we forget about them. And if you can't remember the past, you can't, you can't address anything. I'd say that's one thing. The other thing is we also grew up in an unusually calm period in the long history of our democracy. And if you dig further than the kind of calm 20th century, the American century, you find a lot more ugliness, conflict, violence, fights over voting rights, these things that are familiar today. We have a deep history of this. It's just it wasn't our grandparents' history. It was the history 150 years ago. Yeah, you know, I know that uh, I, I hear people talk about how uh, dirty politics is today. And I think back to people like Andrew Jackson, who who believed that his wife was killed by the press. His wife had a heart attack shortly after he moved into the White House, and he blamed it on the press because they hounded her so uh, so much they called her an adulteress and all sorts of other terrible things. So politics had been dirty since politics began. Uh, and, 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 but, but what is it today? Do you see anything today that's different than, than what has been in the past? Well, yeah, and I, I think most importantly, I see something different that that's different than what we're used to, that our sense of normal politics, the way people behave in an election in 1980 or 1950, we don't have, we have a completely different system in many ways. And so we need a different playbook. And if you look back at elections in the 1800s and in the 19th century, you the behavior of people like Andrew Jackson or, you know, Boss Tweed, these kind of machines on the ground, yeah. you see a lot of these dirty tricks, a lot of this ugliness. And, and if you look at the voters, you know, you read their diaries and their letters, it's not just the bosses. People were intensely partisan, intensely kind of engaged in politics. They're turning out at huge numbers. They're reading the newspapers. They're they're rioting very often. Uh, they're they're really engaged, and they're just as much driving the system as everyone else. So it, it takes kind of a real deep dive into American culture to understand 
what's going on in our democracy. Marilia? Well, you already stole my questions. So. Uh-oh, damn it. <laughs> I think that means I'm getting smarter. Yeah. <laughs> you say. Thank you, Dr. Greenspan, for being on. This is a real treat for us and for our listeners, yeah, I'm sure. Um, I'm wondering if you have any idea, given your in, in interesting role at the Smithsonian, which, which receives federal funds appropriated by Congress, is, is history in, in hindsight and looking in your rearview mirror and in the current um, situation, is history informing the different branches of or the history that has been made, of course? Is it informing the different branches of government, particularly the legislative and the executive branches? It doesn't seem to be because it seems the same mistakes and and the same sort of um, negligence um, goes on. But what is your view on that, please? I, I sense this is going to be a tough question. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I think history. Is, OK, I do think in one way there's a sense that history informs the bad actors in our democracy, which is that it's it's clear that you can block more than you can get done. And that in our political system, based on how the Constitution was designed by, by the founding fathers and how it's been enacted over the years, there there's a lot of emphasis given on reducing change, reducing the heat of change, the speed of change. And in the times in our history when there's been really rapid change, like during Reconstruction, after the Civil War, during the New Deal, Sometimes they're the outlier, and it's easier to kind of enforce the status quo. And I think in basically every issue with our democracy today, from, you know, voting rights to gun control to whatever issue you have, whoever's playing defense has the advantage. And, and so I do think the kind of those who don't want change are, are reading the past and see that, you know, if you can control the Supreme Court, if you can block certain things, you can really slow change for generations. Um, but I think the, the opposite end of that, that maybe those same actors aren't reading, is that if you forestall change too much in a democracy, you, you drive people to act out of the system. And that's incredibly dangerous. You need people, you need the majority to feel that their voices are heard and change can be made. And if you keep blocking, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was terrified that after all the kind of blocking of change of the Gilded Age, it would lead to a revolution. And so he started pushing for reforms because it seemed safer than constantly blocking all 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 the changes that he didn't want to happen. And I think we might consider that again today, that at some point it's safer to have moderate change and to keep forestalling all the, all the reforms that so many people seem to want. Well, since uh, shortly after that, since shortly before that, there was a revolution. We had a civil war. Uh, is that endemic? Is that part of our system? Do we have, are we always going to be driven to that, you think? But by the natural uh, ebb and flow of democracy, was Karl Marx right? You know, Karl said that if we all followed our self, own self-interest, we could never promote the general self-interest, and we would come to a place where everything was conflict. Was he right? And that's what he said about democracy and capitalism. Is he right about that? Is that part of our system? Yeah, I think it is. It's part of our system, but not all of our system. I mean, from one angle, it's amazing that we've only had one civil war in 250 years of, of struggling with democracy because it's a tricky system. I mean, the whole point is you build up conflict and competition just to the point of violence, but not to violence, right? Like, you want to have competitive races. You want to have competitive parties. You want the, the, the legislatures and the candidates to really be, be in, in contest with each other over ideas, but you don't want it to break out into violence. And it's very tricky historically to draw that line. And I think we should be cognizant that we, we grew up in a time when people were more placid, more able to compromise than for much of our history. But I'll also say that there's a little bit of like a, I think like an over inevitability of civil war in our discussion lately in the culture, which is as if every time things go wrong, it ends in a horrible civil war. And, you know, because we have this big history of our democracy, you have all sorts of flaws and conflicts and ugliness and, and kind of wasted periods of frustration that don't lead to civil war, that come back from the brink, that lead to successful reform, creating new parties, creating new independent movements. And, and I'm interested in studying the history of how people have calmed down and turned down the volume in our past, just as much as I am in the times when they, you know, went for the, the muskets and the cannons. It's, it's important to pay attention to those quieter, cooling down periods as much as those periods where, you know, they start firing on Fort Sumter or what have you. So how do we reconcile? You studied the 
you studied this period of time and uh, the Civil War, I mean, it almost tore the country in half. Did it not? How did they reconcile from that? Or or have they? I mean, some people think the South <laughs> haven't gotten haven't. over it yet, you know? Yeah, I'm, there are a lot of Jefferson Davis highways out there in the nation still, so yeah. I don't know. Um, I guess I can't say we have reconciled. Uh, one thing you see is interesting is after the Civil War, you have a, basically a generation of kind of continuing conflict over the Civil War and over other issues. You know, you have Reconstruction, Redemption. You have these political parties that they're full of veterans who are still fighting out the issues of 1861 or 1863 in elections well into the 1890s. And as that generation passes away, you do get a new generation that's not interested in this culture war, that's not interested in a lot of these issues. And they become the progressive reformers and they tackle a lot of other issues that have been neglected for, for a generation. But it's not just it's not just generational changes, it's not just waiting for, for people to die off and, and introducing a new generation because they really want the change. And the one thing the reformers all agree about by the late 19th century is that the current democracy is broken. The current system isn't working and they need to find as many ways as possible around government by big general elections where everyone turns out, everyone fights, you kind of violence in the streets, these huge turnouts, these incredibly close elections. And so they just start kind of experimenting, finding any other option. Maybe maybe resolutions are better and, um, you know, kind of direct democracy is better than voting for representatives. Maybe voting at a lower level is really better. Maybe lower turnout is better for a political system than the really high turnout they used to have. So you see this era where there's kind of a, a shared consensus across people who can't agree on what much else that democracy is broken and they have to fix it. And they kind of start throwing darts at the dartboard. And, and some of them turn out to be really successful. Some of them turn out to be harmful. But I think it's that experimentation that we're still, we're still waiting to see in, in, in our current moment. Rolia? Well, <clears throat> it all jives with these polls that I've read about recently where they asked, they polled citizens and they asked um them if they favor violence to achieve uh, political goals, and the number who do favor violence to achieve political goals has doubled between 2017 and 2019 and continued to rise. Um, and another poll that, that revealed that only 15% of the, the people would agree with punishing politicians for engaging in, in what the Trump attempted to do, which is electoral malpractice, if it benefited society. And I think, you know, we've seen this play out in the 2020 election with what Trump is trying, is trying to do. And it's, it's, it's incredible that this poll is showing what has been happening. What is your view on that? What do you think is, is sort of behind this? I mean, I, I don't think I can offer too much insight into what people are thinking today, but I know historically we have had many periods where people, you know, reach for the Bowie knife or the shotgun or whatever and bring violence into the polling place, into deciding elections. We've had points where there have been warring governments in different states in South Carolina and Louisiana at the same time, basically each claiming to have won elections. Uh, we have one of the ugliest elections we had in our history, the 1876 election, which is contested and ugly and kind of stolen by both sides. At the very end of it, one of the people who helped kind of fight it out says, you know, I found out the most important thing in politics isn't parties, isn't ideology. It's it's what kind of scoundrels run the returning boards, meaning the local places where you vote. And that's true today. Whoever's running the system on the ground has immense power. And I think in 2020, we saw we saw a lot of bad actors, obviously, but we saw people in Georgia and Wisconsin or in, you know, in the capital around the nation who refuse to buckle under the threats of violence and intimidation. And as long as we have some of the, those people at the returning boards and there are not too many scoundrels there, we have better hope, I think. That's one of the really untold stories of American democracy is the people who do the work on the ground and don't take advantage of the system and, and don't go over into into violence and self-interest and, and um, partisanship. And that's a that's a really valuable narrative to look at too, as we look at you know these, this really dark side of, of violence and 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 all this, these threats to democracy. I think it's important to keep an eye on all those people who did not go down that road. I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but that's half the story too, and that's how the that's who won the twenty twenty election in the end, I guess. Well, is that part of? Did we design it that way? Did we design it that way? As a politician, I can tell you. We like to pass things that regulate politicians that have really big loopholes 
that you can yeah. drive a truck through, you know? The Federal Election Commission, I used to be in charge of compliance for the Democratic National Committee. And the Federal Election Commission came along and put in all these rules about contributing to parties. You couldn't give more than $25,000 So what? To, in combination to candidates. So what did we do? We created a thing called non-federal money so that we could, you could give us as much money as you wanted as long as we didn't use it for federal elections. So, you know, we're always looking to control, politicians are always looking for as much control as they can get. So have we designed a system where there is no national voting system? For example, isn't it strange that we have 52 different ways to vote in the district? I mean, in the United States, we have 52 uh, different entities that all have their own rules and regulations. Can we yeah, meet I mean, it think, that way? I have I have an answer and a question back for you. First, I, okay. you can see both ends of that. I mean, on one hand, you can see how inefficient, how frustrating, how hard to engage it is to have this huge federal system, have all these elections basically running simultaneously and hoping they work out. On the other hand, you can see how it's harder to steal an election like that and how you know, one guy in the White House with a federal election system could have done a lot more damage and how it's just so confusing. It's hard. It's harder to hack. It's hard, harder to um, to manipulate because of that. So I kind of see both sides of that. I guess my question for you is, as for both of you, as, as people who know politics, is do those rules, do you, do you think the rules of, you know, what you can donate, how you can behave, does that, do you think that affects how politicians and voters act as much as kind of culture one of the things I've been wondering a lot about as a historian and also over the last couple of years is when is it what's behavior, what behavior is acceptable culturally and when is it what behavior is acceptable legally that determines how people act in politics? I go back and forth. Sometimes I think people do what they can get away with, not what, what they're going to be prosecuted for. And sometimes I think people try to change the norms as much as they can culturally. Do you, do you have a, a view on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a thing called plausible deniability. And that's what politics is all about, right? It's like, do whatever you can do and live in the gray area, not in the black or the white area, but in the gray area, manipulate as much as you can, but make sure you don't uh, ever get caught at it. Uh, you know, make sure that you, you, you take a position that make, doesn't make you responsible. It's kind of the Don Corleone uh, uh, you know, uh, rule of government that you do what you do or politics anyway, you do what you can get away with. And, and, you know, um, you, you, yeah, they manipulate everything, uh, based on what they can get away with. But culturally, that's what's most important. It's most important to voters. I mean, not necessarily the politicians themselves, but to voters, because, you know, the stock market can could reach 50,000 to everybody in America could get a job. But as long as gas prices are over five dollars and grocery prices are going up, uh, that's what people feel. And that's how people vote. You know, they don't necessarily always vote on the issues. They vote on those cultural things. And, you know, I think it's you, you know, you would know this better than I. But I think it's becoming less in some ways, and 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 it's causing us to be more divided in others. Uh, you know, ethnicity. When I was a kid, ethnicity was the big cultural divider. My grandmother was Italian and voted for every corrupt Italian politician that ever came down a pike in New Jersey because she believed if you didn't vote for the Italian, you could get an Irishman. You know, and God forbid. And, and I think we've gone away from that, uh, but we, we're now entrenched on with labels like conservative and liberal. So I think that uh, cultural is more, way more important to the voters. And, uh, uh, but legally, you know, yeah, there's, there's a reason that every political campaign has 13 lawyers on the staff, you know, because they're always trying to figure out what they can do uh, to maneuver around the regulations and the law. And they usually leave them pretty, you know, you leave themselves a lot of flexibility. You know, you take a place like Washington, where in the District of Columbia, we've had very, we've had several corrupt 
politicians over the past several years. We've had five or six people, three who've left office, two who've gone to jail. But you can run for re-election in the District of Columbia, even from jail. You can, um, uh, to recall a politician in Washington, D.C., is almost impossible. You have to have 5,000 people from his party sign a petition in each ward of the city. You need 40,000 signatures that are valid. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. And, and, and the reason for all this is that politicians made the rules. You know, they made the rules and they, they, we see it even today. It's funny. You see them little things when you're involved. Like um, we used to have eight early voting stations. In Washington. Now we have 40. And that favors the incumbent because to stand to have people that go to 40 polling places and campaign for you costs a lot of money. So the people that raise the money, the incumbents, are the people that can afford to send people to 40 polling places where challengers very, very hard to do that. You just think if you paid people $15 an hour and you paid them $150 a day, it would cost you $6,000 a day just to have people stand out and give literature for you for 10 days. A lot of campaigns don't spend $60,000 in the district. So it still goes on. Uh, we still manipulate all the rules as much as we can. We still, you know, try to squeeze in uh, whatever we can into the gray area. Marilia, give us a brilliant question. <laughs> I have a brilliant statement. It's not going to be made by me, but it's something that I have known about for a long time. And if you don't mind, I would like to read it. Yeah. Well, let me just preface by saying that in answer to Dr. Grinspan's question, money is the root is at the root of all evil. Yeah. Being a, an umbrella term for, for so many things in our society. And the answer to his question is multifaceted and very, very complex. But I will just um, digress a little, not stay on the same track, but digress with a quote by Charles Evans Hughes, who was a jurist mm. and a state, who was born in 1862 in the middle of the Civil War. And I will read it. I think it's fantastic. And it says, and it sums up a lot. No greater mistake can be made than to think that our institutions are fixed or may not be changed for the worse. Increasing prosperity tends to breed indifference and to corrupt moral soundness. Glaring inequalities in condition create discontent and strain the democratic relation. The vicious are the willing and the ignorant are unconscious instruments of political artifice. Selfishness and demagoguery take advantage of liberty. The selfish hand constantly seeks to control government and every increase of governmental power, even to meet just needs, furnishes opportunity for abuse and stimulates the effort to bend it, bend it to proper, improper uses. The peril of this nation is not in any foreign foe. I'll say it again. The peril of this nation is not in any foreign foe or foreign enemy. We, the people, are its power, its peril, and its hope. And I think it says a lot. Yeah, me yeah, too. I, that with our, our listeners and with you guys. It, it's a great quote, and it really encapsulates the view of his generation. You said he was born in 1862 or 64. This is generation... Yeah, so this is this generation who's growing up in the late 19th century, and they're almost like Gen Z today. They're growing up in a world where it's assumed that democracy is broken, that Gilded Age politics doesn't work, that the system is corrupt, that the majority of politicians are kind of looking out for themselves, that no big change is going to happen. And then somehow, this is this generation that really makes huge reforms. A lot of the, a lot of the aspects, the norms of politics we like about kind of playing properly, the best behavior, not using violence, kind of independent media, um, how people operate at elections, how people operate for nominations, comes from this generation around 1900 that grew up with really ugly politics and were sick of it. And a lot of them agreed with what Charles Evans Hughes said, or there's a, another quote from Lincoln Steffens, who's this muckraking journalist who wrote The Shame of the Cities, the misgovernment of the American people is the misgovernment by the American people. 
And and if you want to root out the problems, you have to dig out into really how this democracy is perpetuating them. And they do an incredible job. And they, I, I don't I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but they did it once. You had this generation that was born with political violence, corruption, fraud, and they managed to really create the norms of the 20th century. So it is it is doable to change the system. It's not inevitable that you're locked in and things only get worse. So I find in a weird way, because these guys aren't exactly heroes, in a weird way, there's an inspirational story that you can make reform from a bad system or from a flawed system. You can really change the rules of the game, either for good or for bad. Indeed. Well, you know, in your in your latest book, The Age of Acrimony, uh, you argue that democracy, the democracy we inherited was an outlier created to fit the politics of at the time that was broken. Uh, can you explain that? What, what, what do you mean? We were, is, is that a result of the Civil War or just a system that had fallen into disrepair? I would say it's a result of living in a world, in a society that's deeply disrupted. That even if you set the Civil War aside, and even if you set aside the conflicts over race, race and slavery, which are really significant and central, you have this culture in the Gilded Age in the 19th century where people are constantly moving home, emigrating from overseas, moving from farm to factory to slaughterhouse, living in new cities, leaving behind their old communities. They're, they're not going to the same churches or synagogues. They're not participating in the same village festivals. It's a really shaken society. It's kind of boom and bust economic cycles. And a lot of people feel really isolated. They don't have the same anchors, community anchors they had before. And so they're looking for something to anchor them and be they, you know, Irish immigrants or Russian immigrants or African-American freed slaves. They're upended in this new world. And the parties want them. Parties want their votes. Parties want them to march in rallies and go drink in saloons and yell the slogans. And so these political parties really offer membership and community and identity to people who are really, really needy and lonely and disruptive and shaken. And so the more people kind of dive into this partisanship, We've seen what intense partisanship can do to how people behave, when they're willing to use violence, when they're willing to break the law, when they're willing to kind of put their own selfish interests first. Um, we see this in the late 19th century, incredible, ugly political behavior by these parties. And it's not that different than today when we have what they call the epidemic of loneliness. We have social disruption. We have economic disruption. We have technology really shaking up how we interact with each other. It's not a huge surprise if you look from 30,000 feet in American history that people are diving back into partisanship as like a means of identity and membership. So we do, it looks like a relapse to me. It looks like an old disease that's come back and that we're going to have to figure out how to tackle again. It doesn't look like something uh, unprecedented. It looks like we really do have precedents for dealing with the political and social and cultural conflicts we're in right now. Well, given the fact that, uh, you use the word uh, community, that these groups offer community. And we hear this all the time, even with radical right-wing or left-wing groups, that that people are drawn by a sense of community. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, the the NRA or the Hells Angels or the, yeah. the, you know, whatever group you're talking about, a lot of these people are brought together by community. Do we need more political parties? Is that part of our problem is that we have these two political parties that have become isolated and and no longer offer that sense of community that they, they once did? Because, you know, I'm a Democrat because I was a poor kid who got my first decent job by being a teamster. Uh, you know, I felt like I was born a Democrat, uh, but I don't think people feel that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think having more political parties would help with gridlock and all the structural problems we have and help pass laws actually get legislation going. You'd have more options for voting. You'd have more uh, impetus on, on political parties to really get things done to campaign on and kind of bring successes home to their, their district. Um, but it's also true that the periods in our history when we've had a lot of political parties have been really ugly. Like the, the 10 years before the Civil War, you have these parties rising and falling. You have the Know Nothing Party shows up, which is this violent, nativist, anti-immigrant party. So I can't say that the times in our history we've had a lot of parties have been particularly peaceful. But I think what we need is more forms of identity outside of politics. That when people calm down a little bit about politics in the early 1900s, 
they join all these clubs and associations and community organizations. And if you look at the years when most of these organizations, from things like the Elks to the Knights of Columbus, to the B'nai Brit to the, you know, whatever it is, the AAA to all these organizations, the uh, NC, the, the, you know, the, all, all these organizations out there, the ACLU, a lot of them are formed between 1900 and 1920. Like, if you think about the organizations people belong to now or belong to 50 years ago, a lot of them are born right as people are calming down about politics. And it, it's not it's not a point you can prove as a historian, but it stands to reason that having all these other forms of identity and membership and having all these other meetings to go to where you, you know, talk about uh, politics in other ways or you talk about things like community issues or you just go to drink and have fun or whatever, this provides people an off-ramp from that heated partisanship. So I think what you know, I really don't want to be saying what we need as a historian because I study the past. I can't predict the future. But I think we would probably benefit from having more forms of association, membership, community that aren't tied to winning or losing elections. Marilia. I'm wondering, um, on that note, if the Congress ever reaches out to you, you are at the Smithsonian, you are a historian of, of politics, if, do they ever reach out to you and ask you for information, for historical viewpoints, historical data? No, I've had casual conversations with, with uh, Congress members that are wonderful, and it's really great to connect with them, and there's just great fascination with history. The Smithsonian is so lucky to have goodwill and support on both sides of the aisle from, from Congress. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there, there, there are plenty of historians out there they can reach out to um, at the Smithsonian and elsewhere. Uh, but it, it is a really robust engagement. I mean, when we were in D.C., so when we put up a new exhibit, when we think about a new project, we did a huge exhibition that's still up on American democracy a few years ago. And one of the audiences we were thinking about was if you were actually a working politician who was running campaigns and you came through this place, would it would it seem phony to you or would it seem real? Would it seem like our sense of democracy was how it works when you've, you know, been on the battlefield running campaigns for 20 years? So, yeah, we're, we're very conscious of that. Yeah, I'm mad at the Smithsonian because several years ago, you know, the thing they do on the mall every year, I put in an application for me to put a booth on the mall. I wanted to put a, I wanted to put a booth on the mall that was like uh, 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 Lucy's booth from Peanuts where it said, uh, this is your senator, so people could walk up and talk to me because uh, we don't, you know, they don't let me in the Capitol, but they turn me down for the Folk Life Festival. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm not going to take any responsibility for that. I'll take well, responsibility you know for all their successes. I, I just saw this booth, you know, with the thing that said the senator is in. You know how she used to do it. The senator is out. And, but anyway, uh, uh, don't we pick and choose from history? I mean, every politician has, you can go out and listen to speeches. They all have examples from history, but they, you know, they pick what fits their particular situation and they ignore everything else. You know, one of my favorite things, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, is we seem to be historically pomorphic, you know, that we look at the past, I think, very often as if it's really with with the same eyes of the uh, of people of the present. So I have people say to me all the time, you know, the civil rights movement in the South was terrible. The Republicans did all these terrible things because they see the Republican Party is not the party of civil rights. But the truth of the matter, as a Democrat, and you know, as a historian, is it was Democrats that kept segregation going in the South. It was Democrats that, uh, you know, uh, led to a lot of, uh, of you know, uh, problems uh, with African-Americans in the South. Democrats ruled the South in those days. And, you know, but now we think of ourselves differently. And so we we put that back on on on, you know, as we view history in our rearview mirror, we use uh, we don't use the right tools. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think this this might be something that most people don't want to follow, but I think it's a losing game to look for real 
moral heroes who share our values in the past. Because even the people we admire the most, even the people who really were the best actors in history, people we really look up to, you can always find the quote. Um, you can always find a, a problem with Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass or whoever it is, because these people, all these people lived in a different era. They lived in a different world. And so holding, holding somebody in 1850 to the standards of 2022 just seems like a like giving a test without teaching the material. You know, they're never, none of these people are ever going to live to the standards and the values we have today. It's just impossible. The political parties are different. The world is different. And that doesn't mean we should excuse them or, or make them heroes and put their statues up when they upheld values we disagree with today. But it, I think we just need to ask a little less of people in the past to, to, to have lived in our own era and understand our own standards because they're never going to be able to. Right? So I think we... We look to the past like we, with a checklist. And can we give them a, a check for being good or a thumbs up for being good or a thumbs down for being bad? But they, they all lived in a different world. And it just seems uh, missing the point to kind of try to hold them to tw standards of 2022 when they lived 150, 200 years ago. So while, while I think we can learn a lot from them and they're fascinating, whether they were good or bad or right or wrong is, is not the thing that guides me. Whether they were, how were they significant? How did they live their world? What did they lead to? What did they cause? Um, what was it like to live in that era for them? What were their basic experiences? Those are fascinating questions to me, but were they, were they good or bad? It's just, or evil or, or not evil. It, it's just, uh, it seems like it's playing by the wrong rules to hold them to that standard. So that's well, my it, Well, and, and here's my two cents. I worry about uh, that kind of historic pomorphism because that's what leads us to tear down statues and change names of schools and you know and and not I agree with you I think some of those statues need to come down but uh, I think this also uh, adds to the cultural divide when you take people that are heroes to many people people like Woodrow Wilson or or or, or Robert E Lee and you trash them uh, using, uh, you know, the um, kind of criteria you would use for people today. So that's my two cents. Marilia? Well, I have to say that on the one hand, I agree with you about the statues, but on the other hand, I am for leaving them up to as a as a point of instruction for people as to, as to the bad part of history, as to what happened. Because I think if you take all those out, you erase that. And and I think it's just as important to leave up as, as those who did good. And speaking of doing good, I was at the funeral this weekend of one great congressman, Norm Mineta, who, yeah. to quote one of the eulogies, was a good man who did great things. Because somebody had said he was a great man, and, and somebody in another eulogy, I think it was one of his sons, said, he was a good man who did great things. And I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And it, he, the Normanettas of the world are increasingly difficult to find in Congress. And it's sad that that kind of history of people, and it is so recent, it's not back in the 1800s, it's, it's as recent as Normanetta, um, who was his last post-war Commerce Secretary under Clinton and uh, Secretary of Transportation under George W. Bush. Um, and he was a Democrat. And he crossed the aisle, and I have never heard such a beautiful funeral. And I've been to a lot of funerals of, of important people, of people who were prominent in society and in politics, et cetera. But Norm really was amazing to hear the people eulogize, including Nancy Pelosi, who a beautiful eulogy. And the most poignant one, of course, was that of Senator Alan Simpson, another good man. Yeah, who did good great man. And he was a Republican. And they had, as a lot of people know, a wonderful friendship dating back to their both. They were both the same age when they were both 12. And Norm Mineta was Japanese or, and he was interned in uh, Wyoming during World War II with those Japanese internment camps that the government set up because they considered anybody Japanese an enemy after Pearl Harbor. Um, and they, uh, Alan Simpson was a, um, a scout, and they one of their projects was to go to the internment camps and and I guess befriend the, the the children there, and they became friends for life. And to hear Simpson eulogize Minetta was a a case study of what 
politicians should be in every which way. And it is a real sad loss. And I was very emotional during that funeral, not just for the loss of this wonderful man, Normanetta, but for the loss of this great era of what their friendship exemplified in politics from both sides of the aisle. Well, I have to agree with you, first of all, with that. Uh, Normanetta, you know, I worked with a guy named Matsui from Mm -hmm. California on on reparations for the people that were interned. And Mm -hmm. Manetta was part of that. And he was an amazing man. And so was Alan Simpson. so I, I agree 100%. And I hope you're taking notes because it's you that I expect to give my eulogy when uh, when I and the way things are going, I start writing a few uh, notes down. Uh, but anyway, uh, um, what can you know, we're starting to run out a little bit out of time here. What if you could give us one thing that you've learned? from your historical research that we could use, a principle that we could use today, what would that one thing be? Oh, God. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get out of the business of, of lessons from the past because I'm you know, often wrong. But I, I guess the thing I've noticed that I, is the only rule of history that I can say I, I know for sure is that change is the constant rule. That any order or any system, any feeling of what the mood is, of what the culture is, is not permanent. Everything is temporary. Everything in our in our democracy and our world is up for change. And so this, this is true for, for good things. You can't be guaranteed that they will last. You can't guarantee that what was normal politics will last forever. We've saw a lot of it undermined in, in a decade or so. But it's true for bad things too, that, that essentially everything comes for an end. Nothing is permanent. We have a political system. We have a cultural system that churns and moves pretty quickly. And, and that... Um, Really, one of the things that especially the last few years has reminded me of is there are really very few, there are a lot of norms, there's a lot of culture, but almost all of them are flexible, and there are really few hard and fast rules. And so one of the fascinating things about studying history is watching culture, watching politics change, seeing where people find flexibility, room for reform, room for harm, whatever whatever it may be, just watching the unfolding story of, of our democracy has been fascinating, will continue to be, I think. Well, you know, that's one of the strengths of democracy, too, isn't it, that it can change. And it is the only thing that's universal. It's found everywhere. It's found in everything in the university, in, in, in the universe. Everything changes, whether you're talking about a rock or whether you're talking about politics, no matter what you're talking about, change is inevitable everywhere. So that's a very important principle. I agree. Um, and thanks for that. Marilia. I can't hear you. You're muted, Marilia. So, sorry about that. Going back to what Dr. Grinspan was just saying, you don't think that we are on a downward spiral? Because that's the feeling I get. I look back in in the history of my mind, um, in the sort of uh, reel that I have running, and it seems that with every decade that passes, it's on a downward slope. And maybe I'm just catching in my lifetime the downward slope of politics, of, of culture, of society, as opposed to catching it on the upswing. So I guess based upon what you have seen in history, is this the downward spiral that will eventually um, eventually lead to an upward um, trajectory? It very well could be. I mean, but we have in our lifetime and in, in recent memory experienced dark periods that came to an end as well. So like you, uh, like you think about the late 1970s and the mood of malaise and the culture of 1970s and kind of frustration. You think about crime in the 1980s. There was a dark period in the late 19th century, in the late 20th century as well. And then you have kind of the column of the 1990s and, and early 2000s as well. So you, you do have ups and downs. I don't think history has any one inexorable direction for a very long. And you see that when you look at history, you know, people... People love the, some people love the 1840s and were miserable in the 1850s. So this constant back and forth happens. Um, and we have, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say we've been living through fairly dark times and, and kind of in a way that our, uh, our immediate ancestors probably would be unfamiliar with. But uh, it, it's also true that those times are unpredictable and they could get worse. The, 
distinctly possible, or, or they could get better. I've been trying to make a study lately of what people in America said in the year before the Civil War, of whether they thought a Civil War was coming or not. In 1859, 1860, and I have two files on my computer. One is predict Civil War, the other is predicts no war. And the people who predict no war are just as wise, just as thoughtful, just as connected as the people who predict that a war is coming. It's it's like flipping a coin almost, or sometimes it's self-interest. If they think they'll benefit from a war, then they, they predict it. And if they think they'll lose a good job if there's a war, maybe they they uh, they don't predict it. But um, just and it goes to show me that prediction is essentially impossible. That some people get it right sometimes, but but that's as much luck as anything else. And so I know that's not very satisfying to hear, but things could get distinctly worse, or we could turn a corner in the next couple of years and people will calm down. We have we have precedence for both. We have evidence for both. There's more turning away from violence and conflict in our history than there is civil war and real intense political conflict. So I, I know that's not very calming to hear, but I just think that we are incapable of knowing based on our evidence what two years from now will look like. And I also think there's a premium on dark predictions these days. People want to hear, you know, if you have two headlines and one headline is everything's going to be fine and the other is we're all going to die tomorrow, people will click on the link for the we're all going to die tomorrow one. So I do think we need to bear that in mind as we look at our culture, as we look at our history. There is just as much precedent for reform and calming as there is for crisis. I think that part of what is is creating this sort of doom and gloom, it is in, in me and it is in a lot of people I, I talk to, what I read, is the, the, the Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It, mm. it, it's hard for me to get my brain around the fact that it's 2022 and this is what's happening. This country is just flattening. I mean, not to mention Syria, but this country is, is flattening the country next door for no reason. And that's really hard to embrace in this year. You know, we look back and we like to think of ourselves as, as civilization, as, as really grown up and really sophisticated, but it's just not happening. And I think that creates a huge cloud above us. Yeah, well, I agree. I, I hope. This doesn't sound like too much of a tangent, but briefly, my grandmother was born in Kharkiv in, in Ukraine oh, and wow. in the early 20th century. And she was Jewish, Ukrainian and fled basically was a refugee three times over by the time she was in her 30s from the Russian Civil War, from the Holocaust, from all these things. And her first half of her life was basically taken up in many ways by conflict after conflict. And then eventually she moved to Baltimore. And the second half of her life was kind of peaceful American century 1950s, 1960s America. Uh, and so you can't tell from the direction things are going, how they're going to turn out. You can look at her early life and say, look, the world is ending. Or you look at turning a corner and it's basically peaceful and abundant and fairly happy. So it's just, it's really hard to tell from current circumstances ever where your life is going to go or where your political system is going to go. So I just, as a, as a historian, I try to remain agnostic about predictions because of that. That's amazing. That really yeah. sounds like your grandmother inspired your your love of history and your desire to to you know to analyze and to look at it the way you do with such a fine lens. Well, you know, I gotta agree with you about predictions. This is a guy. I was in. I've been in politics forty years, and I told everybody that asked me in my family. I said, Donald Trump cannot get elected president. It's absolutely impossible. You really, if you called me up a week before the election and offered me a bet, I would have given you 100 to 1 odds. I was never so shocked. It was such a wake-up call for me because I was like, what? You know, when, 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 when he won. So you're right about predictions. But let me ask you uh, one last question. Has the Internet changed everything? Has it changed everything in a way that we... Uh, uh, act politically and and join together and you know it, it, are we are we looking at something that we've never seen before because of this? I'll give you two answers for that. Yes, I think it has been huge fundamental changes. I think it, in good ways in connecting people and bringing out people who otherwise wouldn't have a voice, and in horrible ways in, in terms of turning out the worst uh, of our behavior. But I also say say that before the internet changed everything. TV changed everything. And before that, radio changed everything. Oh, yeah. And before that, telegraphs and newspaper changed everything. But if you look how much politics changed when there was a massive newspaper network across the nation, and you could argue between Boston and Charleston or Maine and, and, and Texas, um, 
that's part of what caused the Civil War was suddenly being able to have this big national conversation and argument. So it's it's kind of the nature of life in the modern world for some new technology to come along and just in some ways rewire our brains and our conversations. And so while I do worry about the influence of the Internet greatly and, you know, I'm really wary of, of social media because of it. If we were alive listening to you know speeches in the 1920s and fascists on the radio in Europe, that would that would scare us. If we were watching the newspaper networks and the kind of the battles of the newspapers in 19th century America, we'd notice huge changes too. So it's it's kind of part of the nature of modern life that some communications technology will fundamentally alter our, our culture and our politics. We certainly we've certainly seen that. You're right. Uh, and I studied the civil rights movement in the South because of what I do. And we certainly saw that when uh, fire hoses were used on uh, people in, in, in um, Alabama and Mississippi and put on TV that everything changed. So uh, that yeah. certainly is true. Well, we're almost out of time here, but I want to give you the opportunity. I encourage everybody to go out to, I assume you can get this at your local bookstore, The Age of Acrimony, How Americans Fought to Fix Their Democracy, 1865 to 1915. I've just skimmed the book. I You were kind enough to send me an electronic copy. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I encourage everybody to, to, to do that. If they want to hook up with you, uh, Doctor, is there a website they can go to to learn about what you do? And yeah, if you if you Google me, that, that that's the easiest way to do it. But uh, yeah, I'll say I, I'm a Smithsonian employee, which means I'm a federal employee. You pay my salary. I'm here to talk with the public about history. So if you have questions, if you have arguments, if anything you want to engage with, track me down and send me an email. I, I love talking with people about history and about the past, and so I'm always eager to meet more people who, and hear more opinions about it. So please reach out if you have anything. To, politely you want to say wow that's such a dangerous thing for you to say because i've got at least ten thousand questions about history so i'll be contacting you morelia you want to have the last word before we let this great guest go i just want to thank him for his time and for the work that he does and i hope you continue to to bring the the bird's eye view of america and of history to to the citizens of america here, here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Greenspan. And, you know, we always leave you with a song uh, dedicated to our uh, guest. And so here's one from the Beatles. Uh, what other song would you choose than yesterday? Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in you.